0: and welcome to The Space Above Us, Episode 15, Project Gemini Flight 3, Gemini 5, 8 Days or Bust. Last time, we talked about the groundbreaking flight of Gemini 4. The flight shattered the American space mission duration record and ushered in a new era of spaceflight with NASA's first extravehicular activity. With EVA achieved, the flight checked the box on one of the main goals of the new program, but much work was left to be done. Despite its impressive duration, Gemini 4 was still powered exclusively by batteries, like all previous NASA flights. If we were going to land on the moon, batteries just weren't going to cut it. We had to start flying with fuel cells. Another major task left unaddressed by Gemini 4 was orbital rendezvous. The ability to meet up with another spacecraft in orbit was a core element of the Apollo program. Gemini 5 would address both of these goals, while also further pushing the duration limit and performing a slew of scientific experiments. Gemini 5 was an important mission, but it was also an easy one to overlook. In a way, its role within Project Gemini sort of reminds me of Project Gemini's role within the overall moon landing program. Its goal was to figure out some tricky tasks so that later missions could expand on them, and in the process it became overshadowed by those later missions. The flight would be the first manned mission to be powered by fuel cells, using the reactions of hydrogen and oxygen to provide electricity. Fuel cells are far more efficient than batteries, so the mission would no longer be constrained to the 2-4 to days of previous missions. As we'll see in a few episodes, they could actually extend the mission duration to nearly 2 weeks, but Gemini 5 didn't need to be quite that ambitious. A mission length of 8 days was chosen to mimic the amount of time it would take to fly to the moon... Spend a day there, and fly back. Eight days is a long time, but there would be plenty to keep them busy. Not counting Gemini 4's somewhat half-hearted attempt at station-keeping with its boosters upper stage, it would be the first NASA mission to attempt Orbital Rendezvous. The main target for the Rendezvous missions was to be the Agena spacecraft I mentioned a few episodes ago, but they were having some trouble getting them ready in time for this mission. So instead, Gemini 5 would be tracking down the Radar Evaluation Pod. The Radar Evaluation Pod was a funny little device that I'm sure was very sophisticated, but strikes me as a bunch of radar gear and some blinking lights sort of bolted together. This device, roughly the size of a microwave, was stored behind the equipment module of the Gemini spacecraft, and when the time came, would be popped off the back and drift away, providing a convenient target with which to practice rendezvous maneuvers. It didn't have a docking port, but it did have radar similar to that on the Agena, and would allow the astronauts to get in some critical rendezvous practice. Like all Gemini flights, Gemini 5 also carried a number of scientific experiments. Most of these revolved around various photography targets, which were convenient since the crew could perform these whenever they had any downtime. There were also some medical experiments largely concerned with the response of the human body to extended time in microgravity, One of these tested the ability for the astronauts to keep their bearings when they lacked a visual reference. Another tested a device intended to help the crew get back to normal quicker when returning to Earth. The device was essentially a big inflatable cuff, imagine a blood pressure machine, that was worn around the pilot's thighs. The cuff would inflate for two minutes out of every six. I think the idea here was to make the heart work a little harder while in the relaxing low-gravity environment, so that when it had to get back to work on Earth, it wasn't such a difficult transition. There were also a few other experiments that I won't take the time to get into. In fact, from this point on, you can pretty much assume that all flights will have a bunch of experiments that I won't really have time to get into. If anyone is really itching to know more about this stuff, let me know, and I can include a supplemental on orbital experiments. Gemini 5 would be commanded by our old friend and original Mercury 7 member, Gordon Cooper. We've talked about his backstory already, so I won't get into it again, but I will mention that with this flight he will become the first human to fly two orbital missions in space. This was his final spaceflight. Joining him in the right seat was pilot and first-time spacefarer and New 9 alum, Charles Pete Conrad. You may be wondering, as I certainly did, how Pete is a nickname for Charles. The answer is, it isn't. His father wanted to name him Charles, his mother wanted to name him Peter, and the compromise was that his legal name was Charles, but everyone called him Peter. Whatever works, I guess. Pete Conrad is one of those guys that makes me wish I had a lot more time to work on this podcast, because there's just no possible way I can do him justice. As a child, he overcame dyslexia and went on to win a Navy ROTC scholarship to Princeton University. After Princeton, Conrad joined the Navy, where he served as a test pilot and pilot instructor. He actually had a shot at becoming one of the original Mercury astronauts, but was, um, let's say, not a fan of the stringent medical testing. Two examples illustrate this pretty well. After being shown a series of inkblot tests and being asked what he thought about them, he was shown a blank card and reported, It's upside down. When asked for a stool sample, he delivered it in a nice gift box with a ribbon. So no Mercury flights for Pete Conrad. This was his first of four spaceflights. Speaking of new astronauts, I should also mention that the fourth group of astronauts joined NASA at this time. This group's snappy nickname was the Scientists, six potential spacemen who were the result of pressure from the scientific community to fly someone other than test pilots in orbit. They were met with strong resistance from the likes of Deke Slayton and others who felt that this was a pilot's job only, at least for now. Drama aside, in June 1965, the Mercury 7, the New 9, and the 14 were joined by Owen Garriott, Edward Gibson, Dwayne Gravline, Joseph Kerwin, Curtis Michel, and Harrison Schmidt. Graveline and Michelle resigned from NASA before having a chance to fly in space, but we'll be seeing plenty of the other guys when the later Apollo missions and Skylab missions roll around. Also, I have no idea if I'm pronouncing Curtis Michelle's last name correctly. Gemini 5 was planned to be an eight-day mission. With that in mind, Gordon Cooper continued in the apparent meta-tradition of controversial crew choices and designed a patch featuring a covered wagon with Eight Days or Bust on the side. The higher-ups weren't thrilled with this for similar reasons as Grissom's choice of Molly Brown for Gemini 3, it wasn't exactly distinguished, but also, what if something went wrong and they did indeed bust? Cooper got his patch, but for the mission, the Eight Days or Bust slogan was covered by a piece of fabric. Ten weeks after Gemini 4 landed, August 21st, 1965 dawned, and Gemini 5 rose from Launch Complex 19 to begin what was planned to be a mission over a week in length. At the moment the second stage shut down, Gordon Cooper became the first human to fly two orbital missions. The planned eight-day mission duration was called into question almost immediately, however. Gemini 5 was the first spacecraft to be powered by fuel cells, but the fuel cells appeared to be failing. In order to produce electricity, fuel cells need to maintain a certain level of pressure, and the pressure was dropping. It wasn't quite an emergency yet, but it was certainly a concern. As the experts in Houston tried to determine the source and possible repercussions of the falling fuel cell pressure, the crew got to work with one of the main tasks of the mission. Just over two hours into the flight... Cooper turned his spacecraft to the side and ejected the radar evaluation pod. Now that they had a target, the crew next flipped on the rendezvous radar positioned in the nose of the spacecraft and quickly acquired the pod. Even this simple test was a crucial part of proving that the vehicle was capable of orbital rendezvous. Unfortunately, this simple test was also all that they got, as the crew's attention was soon drawn back to the falling fuel cell pressures. The pressure had continued to drop, well past the recommended levels, and then past what had even been observed before in an operational unit. With no other choice, Cooper began to power down the spacecraft, and with it, the power-hungry rendezvous radar. The poor little radar evaluation pod must have wondered where everyone went as it drifted away into obscurity. Unlike previous flights, Gemini 5 carried no batteries in its equipment module but it did still have some in the re-entry module to power the spacecraft after the equipment module was jettisoned. If necessary, the crew would be able to tap into those batteries and perform an emergency return to Earth if the fuel cells failed entirely. So while time was of the essence, there was a bit of a buffer as ground controllers frantically tried to salvage their eight-day mission that now seemed unlikely to hit eight hours. With the or bust part of their slogan, surely ringing in their ears, the crew must have been delighted when it became clear that the pressures in the fuel cell were stabilizing. It was only around 70 psi, a far cry from even the 200 psi that had previously been considered alarmingly low, but it did seem to be holding. Not only that, but tests on the ground showed that it should be able to continue providing electricity at that pressure, even if it was at lower levels than desired. So the rendezvous with the radar evaluation pod was out, but there was still plenty that could be done while on orbit. Orbital rendezvous expert and fellow astronaut Buzz Aldrin worked with mission planners to set up a series of, quote, phantom rendezvous. The idea was that rather than actually meeting up with another spacecraft, or pod, the crew of Gemini 5 would program their computer to bring them to a predetermined point in space at a predetermined time. This obviously wasn't ideal, but it still put the onboard computer through its paces and gave the crew some much-needed practice in the counterintuitive motions required to meet up with another object in space. So the mission was, for the most part, saved. But the crew were still down on the amount of electricity they had expected to use. This meant that they were forced to spend long periods of time in power-down mode, aimlessly drifting as they racked up the hours. They kept themselves busy with onboard experiments, exercising with a bungee cord apparatus, and taking photos, but there was only so much to do. As incredible as it sounds, these two men, flying hundreds of miles above the Earth, at 17,500 miles an hour, were bored. Cooper at one point even mentioned he wished he had brought a book. If you'll recall... Cooper was perhaps the only other person at that moment in history who had experienced extended periods of downtime in space before. During the day-long flight of Faith 7, he had long stretches of time to look out the window and see what he could see on the Earth's surface. His reports of being able to see villages, roads, trains, wakes from boats, and even occasionally individual houses when the lighting was right surprised the folks on the ground. Many assumed he must have been imagining it, or perhaps even suffering from some mild hallucinations due to his extended stay in space. With Cooper's seemingly superhuman visual acuity in mind, Cooper and Conrad were given several targets to spot on the ground during their mission. One less exciting, if perhaps practical, target was a large calibration pattern in the desert. They also observed two Minuteman missile launches and even a rocket sled test. With Pete Conrad there to back him up, it seems that Cooper hadn't been exaggerating after all. In an age before automated satellites were as sophisticated as whatever device you're using to listen to my voice, let alone a modern surveillance bird, the ability for men to spot details on the surface with their naked eye piqued the interest of many in the airspace industry. As the days passed in orbit, a major milestone was reached. The capsule and the laws of physics that guided it took no notice of such worldly matters, but at that moment, Gordon Cooper and Pete Conrad had extended the total time and space of the United States past that of its nemesis, the Soviet Union. We had taken the lead in the space race. And I think it's fair to argue that we never gave that lead back. The Soviets would make incredible strides with long-duration missions and space stations, but from here on out, it was Americans claiming the big firsts and Americans setting the big records. So buckle up, dear listeners. The good stuff is just getting started. Even record-breaking duration missions must come to a close. As the days ticked by, the thrusters had grown sluggish, records had been broken, and the crew had run out of experiments to perform. Seven days, 22 hours, and 55 minutes after launching, eh, let's call it eight days for short, Gemini 5 and its crew splashed down safely in the Atlantic Ocean. The Gemini guidance computer had performed flawlessly during re-entry, guiding the spacecraft exactly where it intended to go. So why is it that it splashed down 80 miles short of the planned landing site? The thing about spaceflight is that the details will always get you. The computer had been programmed to consider each day on Earth to be a 360 degree revolution. Except that's not quite how things work. For really complicated astronomical reasons that I'm not going to get into, look up sidereal day if you want to learn more, the proper number would have been 360.98 degrees. Lucky for the recovery crew, Cooper had noticed that they were lining up for an off-target landing. He wasn't aware of the cause of the problem, but he was aware that he could gain additional lift by banking his spacecraft and at least reduce the landing error as much as possible. Shortly after splashdown, the crew was on board the aircraft carrier USS Lake Champlain, likely eager to stretch their legs a bit after their lengthy stay in orbit. Extensive medical tests were to follow, surely to Pete Conrad's chagrin, but the news was mostly good. There was some concern about the rate of bone density loss and blood plasma loss, but within a few days, both crew members were back to their pre-flight conditions. It seemed to raise some concerns for even longer missions, But eight days was all that you really needed for the moonshot. And besides, the experimental pressure cuff apparatus did seem to help Pete Conrad recover slightly quicker than Gordon Cooper. Despite all its difficulties, Gemini 5 was a wildly successful mission, and accomplished all of its goals, only missing out on an experiment involving photography of the radar evaluation pod. They had proven the techniques of rendezvous, albeit with a phantom partner, and proved that humans could survive for the time required to get to the moon and back. The pieces of the puzzle were coming together. I'd like to take a moment here to discuss the departure and later adventures of Gordon Cooper. I'm not sure I'm going to do this for all of the astronauts, but I think the Mercury 7 certainly deserve a proper send-off. With two flights under his belt in both Mercury and Gemini, Cooper was one of the more senior astronauts, In addition to his flights on Faith 7 and Gemini 5, he served as command pilot for the backup crew of Gemini 12 and as commander for the backup crew for Apollo 10. Following typical crew assignment rules, this would have put him in line to command Apollo 13 the next year. However, he was eventually bumped to a later mission when fellow Mercury 7 astronaut Alan Shepard was returned to flight duty and was given the Apollo 13 command. Shepard later wound up commanding Apollo 14, leaving Jim Lovell to command Apollo 13 and a story I'm sure all listening to this podcast are familiar with. Cooper became frustrated with his diminishing chances to fly in space again, and resigned from NASA in 1970. Similar to Scott Carpenter, internal politics and perceived lax attitude may have contributed to his departure. Even with Gemini 5, it proved difficult to persuade him to put more time into simulator training— and eyebrows were raised when he participated in the 24 Hours of Daytona race while on active duty. Whatever the reasons for his departure, his place in spaceflight history is forever assured. After NASA, Cooper worked as a technical consultant and served on the board of several corporations. He even worked with Disney as vice president of R&D for Epcot, my favorite Disney park and the clear superior of the four Disney World parks. Gordon Gordo Cooper succumbed to heart failure after battling Parkinson's disease, passing away at the age of 77 on October 4th, 2004. If that date sounds familiar, it's because it was the 47th anniversary of the flight of Sputnik back in 1957. We'll say goodbye to Cooper with a quote of his. Quote, I have the normal desire, experienced by everybody who's ever flown an airplane with a certain amount of zoom capability, to go a little bit higher and a little bit faster. Mission accomplished, Gordo. Next time, we'll be talking about the following flight in Project Gemini, which should be obvious at this point. After Gemini 3, Gemini 4, and Gemini 5, the next to launch would be Gemini 6, right? Well, no, not quite. Because Gemini 6 became Gemini 6A. But wait, it launched after Gemini 7? What's going on here? Find out in two weeks as I attempt to untangle the twisted web of mission plans and set Wally Shirah and Tom Stafford on their way. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass.